Hello and welcome to the Caring Instinct podcast. We are very excited today to welcome our first guest. We are not playing it cool, we are too uncool for that. So um, give it up for Andy Stockton from Sheffield. A social worker and a musician. Is it right to call you a social worker, Andy? Well, I'm not a trained or qualified social worker. I'd, I'd say really it's probably best to say community development practitioner. It probably covers oh. it best. And I, I think as we as we talk, we, I'm going to sort of show you the different areas that that practice has gone into, especially on sure. family. Sure. So, yeah. Sorry. I will. Yes, right. I will. Uh, so Andy is an experienced family worker, community development practitioner and adult educator. He has recently worked with male refugees on their well-being and is currently co-developing a men's health group on behalf of Sheffield City Council. Over a 20-year career, Andy has chaired the partnership board of the Bungree and Thorvale Shewastad program, was young father and boys and young men's worker for Sheffield, and has been commissioned by local authorities around the UK to provide special skills training on working with males. So you are now training people who you used to be. Well, Is I would right? say that, actually. Yeah, um, it was, it's interesting. It's something that's dried up. I mean, to be honest with you, it was a wonderful sort of part of my um, my practice at the time. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the funding cuts to local authorities have really put an end to it. But what I was actually finding was that we would sometimes have relatively new workers attending the training, but a lot of the time it was more experienced and seasoned youth workers, family support workers, uh, school support workers, uh, or even maybe sometimes people working at a bit more of a strategic level taking part in that. And I actually think what it did was it helped them refocus on their core motivation and values for why they were undertaking that work. And I think one of the outputs really was was a sense that people were overcoming some of the compassion fatigue by having two days to step away from the role and have a reflective experience around around those things. And and obviously within that there would be some sharing of our approaches. And I'm talking about this as our because I'm not going to take individual ownership of this. I don't think I, I developed a lot of these male focused models and our and a philosophy around that with a really long-term trusted and very dear colleague and friend, Paul Ellsworth, who's, who's now working um, as a, he's managing a support programme within a housing association in Sheffield, but he's also a person-centred therapist as well. So um, our journey is very much in tandem, actually, through a lot of this, I think, Colleen. So, yeah, I hope that makes a bit more sense, you know, that we would get this incredible mixture. And it was very rewarding to see people come in, often very weary of funding cuts, threats to the jobs, issues with management, issues with strategic direction, and understanding that as a human being, they needed some space to explore that, you know, in order to be able to go back into the role and focus on the families, the young people that... They really wanted to, and a lot of people did feedback to us that they felt incredibly re-energized. And I thought that was that was amazing. You know, even if we just achieved that, that would be incredible. You know, um, of course, and, yeah. But I think also we did manage to pass over some core approaches, and that's I guess what we'll be talking about a little bit as as our, our chat develops. Yeah, it's something that kind of makes a, like a lot of sense when you hear it as well, but it's not. I don't know what comes up for me. It's not something that is very obvious when you're really in the in this type of work, or it, it, you can also lose it really easily. Mm. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think it's very attritional, Joe, on people. It is, and people yeah. will go into many caring roles and many roles of helping people where that will that will affect them. I've I've had that described to me by a colleague from a family project who would previously been like a dispatcher with the police, you know, and said that she saw that happen to many of the, the recruits that come in really, really motivated to help communities and actually they'd be hitting against so many barriers and the politics of it was so sort of overwhelming sometimes as well that that, that could then harden them into a place where they'd retreat, they'd, they'd withdraw emotionally from people and... And I think the worry of that is that people will withdraw emotionally from themselves as well. You know, so I think for some, for me and Paul, self-care 
and that self-evaluation was really important to us. Now, it's something that we still very much practice. I had the pleasure of speaking to him a few days ago, and it's these are some of the richest and most reflective conversations I ever have, actually. You know? So he's, he's a greatly appreciated part of my life and a resource to me, I think, hopefully, the other way around. So, so I think definitely something we touch on, Joe, in our personal conversations as well. How is the work affecting us? How big is the gap between where we are and what we want to achieve and where's the challenges between those things and how do we protect that integrity? Um, a well worker is a far more effective worker and a much safer person for the people that the intervention may be aimed at to be around as well. Somebody who's clear on where their limits are, you know, and where their boundaries are is, is likely to have a far more positive effect on people who may be very much engaged with grappling with those things themselves and very unsure about them. So how, to some extent, we role model as well that, that you know, hey, okay, it's okay to have a day off. It's okay to do that, you know. Um, it's really important, I think. And, and we'd often say to the workers as well, Joe, that, you know, I know you'll be under a lot of pressure to go back to work after you've finished training. And sometimes people have an evening session, but wherever you can, take some time away now to just reflect on the, what has been probably a very emotionally rich and dense dense sort of conversation that you've been having in a very participatory way as well. Um, and I think that comes to the very heart of what I'm probably wanting to tell you about community development and how that has influenced my practice. It's the idea, I think, of participation is very, very, very central to my thinking, you know, um, and to recognise people's agency can't be improved by being treated as a passive object really in some sense they, they have got there's a dynamic thing going on in every level in their lives as well um, so yeah so where would you like to go with this would it be helpful if i introduce well let's go there now shall we yeah. what do you think of a community development you said if you want to yeah thank you joe well i suppose yeah, it makes sense if i just touched on how i entered the field of work so Please. i as you mentioned all you're a musician i do other things um i met my partner quite young we were both 21 by 25 i became a young dad and i'd just been doing all sorts of little bits of work that weren't fulfilling they were just for the money you know um i'd done my degree but i didn't feel like i would find any real way of connecting it to the reality is a paid work at that point got and a then, degree in law haven't you that's correct yeah and actually yeah. Ironically, i found that has come into play more and more but in quite subtle and insidious ways over time and you know and i don't regret doing it but it was a big brick of you know knowledge to hammer into your head and something that wasn't i know i can see how your really. heart wouldn't be in in that of those years ago <laughs> yeah, i was terrible and i'm really really grateful that the university gave me a pass i'm not gonna lie so um, they were very nice to me and uh, they did tell me that they said we didn't like you <laughs> you were great so. do you know what we need we need lawyers with a heart we need likable lawyers i'm not a lawyer though and that, that was never really where i wanted to go and I think that's probably that... what they hoped for yeah, but yeah but there's other ways of using it and i think understanding the philosophical framework of rulemaking of the way that your jurisprudence functions the things like that and these these are things that stay, have stayed with me i think as well um so anyway to go back to it and I, then you were sorry oh you were a stay-at-home father that's correct so this is what happened i i said to my wife who was having the sort of beginnings of a career and doing what she was doing. I said, well, look, I will stay at home if you want. That seems to make sense. I was actually working on the post at the time as well, guys. So, you know, I was doing a very physically demanding job and, you know, I pulled out all the stops, did every bit of overtime I could so that we had enough money to transition. Um, but we live in a, also we live in a re regeneration area. So you mentioned the short start program and I'll get to that shortly, but mm -hmm. that, was I think a really significant phase of, of UK society under New Labour. There was a lot of funding flowing into communities that were identified as having additional needs and deprivation and uh, cycles that needed, you know, some intervention to try and break, and particularly sometimes in families as well. Um, so I took advantage of that. I went and I did my community development training within the community. It was an accredited course, but that was an incredible experience. So I was suddenly with very different people uh, in a very diverse group, only guy as well. And that I, was, I felt very 
appreciated and treasured by the, many of the women around me. They they found that really interesting that I was in the room with them as a young dad of 25, but already quite worldly as well, I suppose, through some of the other things I've been doing. And um, at the same time, I, I was looking for opportunities then to, to volunteer. And I think that's one of the things about the particular course that I took is it's, developed, it's delivered in the community and it will often motivate you to get more involved. And that's exactly what happened. So I saw an advert from the Centre for HIV and Sexual Health, which interested me, knew nothing about this, no sexual health experience really at all, you know, not sort of doing that kind of work. And they were asking for parent peer uh, volunteers to help deliver sex and relationships education sessions with parent, with other parents on the reasoning that a parent talking to a parent is a much flatter level, you know, and that was amazing. Mm-hmm. I did the training for that. That again was another poof. Wow. Suddenly I'm sat talking to a, a, a woman from Bahrain, a doctor from Bahrain, and we're exploring the different cultural attitudes towards sexuality, towards relationships. And, you know, and I'm going, this is amazing. And I think it, these, these sorts of experiences really were a lifelong, start of a lifelong addiction, you know, to this encountering difference in this kind of sense, really, I think. Um, so it went on from there. And I became uh, involved with the Short Start program. I was a young dad, I was attending toddler groups. So they kind of grabbed me, would you like to get involved? And it didn't take very long before they kind of clocked, oh, this guy's got a law degree, he understands some things around community. I'm a fairly confident person. So even at 26, when I was asked to chair the partnership board, I think I made a decent fist of it. It's, it's really nice to have that feedback still from this, who was the citywide coordinator, who's now a friend of mine, who says, you were great, actually. You really seem to know what you were doing. And between us, and the way Chris would look at it, I think, now when we speak, is he said, between us, we rescued that programme. And I, having put my roots down in a multicultural community that had been identified as needing this additional help, I felt very passionate that families deserved the opportunity to break some of the cycles, to have the resources accessible to them within the community. And uh, that was a very incredible experience. I think I was chair for two years. We managed to do two capital projects. Those buildings still stand, guys. One's now been absorbed into a a local primary school. The other one's still a children's centre. And over the years, I've met more and more, mainly mums who've told me how much they got out of visiting that building and the services that were there. So, ah, oh, my heart, you know, the, oh. it wasn't fun <laughs> doing that capital project stuff. But, That's rewarding. Yeah, that was incredible. And I can still go down there and see that building and go, okay, it's not the most beautiful building, but we did what we could with what resources we had. And one of the headiest moments perhaps was signing off half a million pounds worth of public money, you know, um, which was our half towards the match fund. So that was, you know, that was incredible. So really... This is, these are my starting entry points, and I suppose they weren't initially so much as a practitioner within the context of family support, but somebody doing an intervention that was very low level, very, very relaxed and informal with parents to help them feel more confident to talk to the children and listen to their children, and also at the same time on a more strategic level, working to try and ensure that communities did have access to the support to the resources that they might need if their family was finding itself in distress or they were socially excluded or there was other barriers preventing them achieving the things that they, you know, that most families want, which is stability and, you know, well-being and a sense that they can move them towards and fulfil their own aspirations, you know, um, separately or collectively, I think. And so... Yeah, it was an interesting time. You know, it's suddenly gone from music and being a postman to this within about two years. You know, uh, okay, here I am now. So, <laughs> so it sounds like, in a way, your community grew you up, and especially this multinational element to it, and you kind of circled back to help the community. I think so. Yeah, and I think you know many people want to help the community, but ultimately, what community development training gave me the insight and the skill to do was to recognize the centrality of listening to people Mm -hmm. actually and that that maybe is somewhere that people don't always 
got to connect as strongly, you know, within their praxis. You've, we've got very strong feelings about what we want to see happen for children, especially. And at the same time, I was coming from a point of view where, okay, I've been trained to talk and listen to parents respectfully. I've been trained to consider how we can engage, you know, a dynamic and diverse group. We remove, systematically identify and remove any barriers to participation for people within community development. Um, and, you know, and also my, I think my, my understanding of community development continued to increase as well because I then became, I kind of graduated to become a teacher of that course, um, which remained an accredited one for quite a few years. So I was in this position then of bringing other people through and sharing some of my journey and insights, but also allowing them the space to define where they would want to go and how they would like to use this approach. And the, I think the, the sort of core thing that, that really struck me in the way from teaching it was there was a particular line that was in one of the resource packs we had from the Sheffield City Council, and it was that it's both an ethical and practical approach. And I have come to understand that as best as I can put it into words, is to say that it's not only the right way to treat people, really, but it's also by treating people in the right way, it's the most effective way of working. There are more opportunities to achieve change by starting from respecting people and from listening to them um, and understanding their complexity mm -hmm. in their lives. So could we, uh, could we go into that, please, about the sort of the cornerstones of this approach? Yeah, sure. I mean, the ethical and practical approach. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, it originates from radical left-wing politics um, and has a strong kind of connection, I think, with Marxism. So the, the founding kind of practitioner who wrote the kind of, you know, the era text of it uh, is Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator. And he, you know, did things to very much challenge the systematic oppression of people within the poorer communities, the more marginalized communities within Brazil. Um, one thing that really jumps out of his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is, is an anecdote about teaching um, rural uh, families how to read and write in 40 days in order uh -huh. to pass a literacy, literacy test which enabled them to vote. If they couldn't, they had no voice in the political system. And as you can imagine, okay, you can do that and they achieve that and that would have been an amazing piece of work and a very beautiful thing. If you would watch that happen, it would have been extraordinary. It's like, you know, this is what I love about it. It's just like, you know what, this is your Spielberg movie bit, guys, you know, whether you hear the music rising, it's like when you see this happen for people, you see them suddenly recognise they could change something, they could embrace power, they could take collective action, you know, that this isn't just words, these are not just ideals, but this is coming, like mm -hmm. I say, from a practical bedrock. Um, that That is extraordinary. Um but there are consequences too, you know. Paulo Freire and his team of people, his educators, they had to they had to do one, you know, because ultimately there was going to be a reprisal against them for using a tool as powerful as that to undo the hegemony of, you know, ultimately an oppressive hierarchical system that was excluding people from having influence and voice over their lives and the conditions that they were living in. Um, so. I think that that's that's sort of how I'd best describe it, really. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the best. I'll sort of summarise it like that, really, and then leave it there for the moment, and leave you, you know, to follow up. Wow. <laughs> I suppose the uh, the more if it's an oppressive regime, if there's this tremendous inequality, the, the balance of power is really askew, then something, a small action could have such a huge impact. Yes, but it's I still when so. you were, uh, yeah, you know, comparatively, if, if you have no power and then suddenly you are literate and you can make sense of what's going on in, on a completely different level, that's, mm. that's just a huge, but, but then you again bump into the next wall, you find out that your empowerment only goes this far in the system. 
but it's you know what this is listening to this is like a breath of fresh air because it's easy in the community to go into this loss of agency to this mm. learned helplessness mm. definitely well we live in a fundamentally cruel and unjust system and it's so pervasive it's actually almost impossible to recognize it um, we live under neoliberal economics, which does not value humans, it does not value nature, and it is, anti, it is anti-democratic in many ways. The, the original aim of it was to undo the gains of social democracy, and we are now living in that paradigm. Um, I think one of the most positive things I could say about that is to quote the late Ursula Le Guin, who left us with a shining jewel of truth about this, I felt, and, and she said that during the time when the world was dominated by the, the paradigm of the divine right of kings, people living within that would have never been able to imagine it would end. But she says, but it did. And capitalism will too. <laughs> so I'm kind of, okay, you know, nice one. Yes, exactly. Nothing is permanent. Change is the only constant. And, you know, but going back to what you said, Olya, I think it's that small changes and, would you like to hear an anecdote, a, a kind of case study of how I've used some of these skills within this community with families? I, I'd, I'd quite like to share one if you'd be interested. And, 100%. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, part of my journey really has been, it's been so lovely. It's like I say, been to engage with so many people from so many different cultures. I talked to my friend the other day and saying, although I've not traveled, I feel like I have. I feel like the world has come to me. And that's partly by living and working in Burn Grieve, which is an incredibly multicultural area. It's got as many spoken languages as, say, Lambeth in London. Um, and that, you can imagine as well, that presents complex barriers sometimes as well that we've got to work around. That's it. where you live in Sheffield, right? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, for I've example, been there then, yes. Yeah, we're there at Shorestock going, okay, we've got a little bit of money for interpreters. How do we stretch that to work around 51 languages? It's not possible, oh, you know. Wow. So then you're having to find more community solutions where maybe you're looking more at losing volunteers and you know and that is not a bad thing at all then you know so i'd like to share a quick story i'll, I'll do it as best i can it's quite touching i think as well i think you'll enjoy it and i think so the listeners um so one of the one of the people i met through my journey as a teacher was a young smiley woman she was a, a single mum and living very close close to where we were delivering in this area. And um, she was a fantastic potential learner. I could see that. But the first time she joined our, which is a 15 session course, you know, 93 hours of study time, her life wasn't in the right place for that. She couldn't carry that. She couldn't support that. And there were other opportunities at that time were really important for her to kind of follow up. And we said, fine, me and my project coordinator, you know, uh, we were like, okay. She came back though, a couple of years later. And this time she completed the course and something very interesting had happened and changed in her that I could see that her confidence had increased, her motivation to work within the community had increased, her skills had increased because of the other act activities she'd been doing. And this time she came back really fully revved up and she had started to build a group of other mums around her from the same community she's a part of, so the Somali community in our area. Um, and she started to talk a bit about their needs. Uh, one of the activities we I've, I'd adapted by this point on the on the course was to say instead of let's just do some let's pretend ideal projects that you'd like to create using community development skills and techniques is let's actually see if you would, would design a real one, a viable one. And I gave you know the funding pack from Awards for All from Big Lottery to to the groups and you know and I watched something really lovely happened. I watched her and another Somali woman and some Pakistani women huddle together and start really getting some ideas down about how you could form a group that would help families in their communities. And the, mm -hmm. the sorts of issues that they were concerned about and some of the things that were happening. So I watched this happen and I thought, this is great. I've got a feeling something might come of this that this is such a practical learning model here that this is going to lead to outcomes. Not surprisingly, it did. The next thing that I hear is that, you know, well, call her S, has now set up a mum's group within the Somali community. 
and it's attracting about 20, 30 mums, right? It's like, wow, you know, on the button here, something red hot is starting to happen, and she's pulling people in like a lightning rod. I was still in touch with her. I was delivering another uh, training course for a different provider, a more, which was, I thought was a nice, more advanced thing for her to join. So come back, join me again. So she came back and did the Skills for Volunteers training course. And what happened was, one day, she came in incredibly upset. And there'd been a violent confrontation between young Somali men who were involved with drug, with drug dealing business in the area and some young Cossidan men who were as well. And this had been, it'd been very scary. The damage was to property. Luckily, I don't think anyone was hurt, seriously. I could be wrong about that, but I'd never heard of anyone being hurt. But there was young men running amok with weapons in the streets, you know, and it was terrifying for people. But she took it really hard. She was really ashamed. She was incredibly upset that her community had been a part of this. She told me she went to Kosovan shopkeepers she knew and apologised to them, you know, for the damage done to their businesses by young Somali men. It got my heart. She really needed, like, my care, the care of the group on that day, you know, and I just heard the call. I said, can I help? So she invited me to come and meet her group of mums. And it was amazing what flowed from this. I, I went and met them, had a chat through her as an interpreter, because very few of the mums had much English. They weren't very confident in it. And we started to inquire what was going on for them. We started to explore what are the issues. We did some demographic stuff as well you know where are you live what you're living in what sort of circumstances are you living in you're in council housing how big is your family is your partner around you know the, the the real basic realities that these women were dealing with and what happened was we revealed that many of the young people of that community were becoming very vulnerable to being groomed into drug gangs through her other outreach s managed to bring community police into the room she managed to bring senior housing officer into the room. And I'm going, look at you, go, girl. You know, this is community development now. Now we've got people with different levels of power starting to come together and talk based on what they're hearing from, directly from the community. And we were all very concerned. I have to say, I liked every single worker I met through this. I myself brought in Kath, who had been my first colleague in the project where we talked to parents about sex and relationships I called Kath back find out that she grew up around the corner which I didn't even know so she had her roots within the Pittsmore community as well the Burn Grieve community and um, the first thing we did because the, the women had been very graciously given a, a, a free space to use a room in the back of the, uh, the library building um, by Marcia who manages that for another community organisation, that we had a space to work in, a big conference room, you know, we're getting busy with the flip chart now, you know, we're, we're doing all sorts of stuff. So the first thing we did is said, okay, right now the probably the most important stuff is that, that there's a link that needs strengthening between parent and child. Kath's business is right in this. So she came in and she delivered six sessions, I think, as a volunteer, we were none of us paid to do this at this stage. We just all went, something's got to do. Be done. You know, somebody's got to do something. And other agencies didn't want to get involved. They, you know, so many barriers they didn't really fancy it. So basically, this seemed to work really well. And I, you know, wasn't privy to the conversations. I think it was fantastic. It was an all-female group initially where they got the opportunity to talk about things. Obviously, for the women, they could disclose some pretty difficult stuff from their own lives and some of the cultural factors that you know uh, might be in play as well um, and the taboos um, and you know I felt that was a really good starting point so from that I came back into the picture and this time we delivered a course on health and well-being which looked at things like stress self-esteem assertiveness you know and I thought really the big takeaway for the first group is when they understood that people with poor self-esteem will often attack yours they will try to change your positive cycle into a negative one to match their own and one of the women i thought articulated perfectly said i feel like i've been taught self-defense 
Yeah. You know, so we continued. We made deeper and deeper inroads into this community, managed to get a funded, you know, um, a funded sort of organization to come into play. And thankfully, they paid me. They paid S. So this was now her entry point into adult learning. She becomes formally a classroom assistant. And I could say, I'll tell you how proud I was of her, you know, for this journey she was taking. It was absolutely extraordinary, you know. Um, And we delivered about, I think, another two or three of these courses. And everyone was rammed, guys. We were literally having to turn people away. It was fascinating. It was, for me, this felt like Star Trek. You know, I'm meeting people I couldn't talk to if I didn't have this other person in the room, and yet I'm getting to know them. They're Muslim women, so we never touch, you know, and yet they're allowing me to talk to them about very real things, you know, why women need more iron in their diet, you know, um, well, because of menstruation, you know, why we have fibre in our diet, you know. Well, because we need to go to the toilet, you know. And, and they were just so grateful. They were soaking this learning up. I learned this. The Somali culture had been an oral one until about 1974. Many of these women had had very little experience of any form of education. One woman in the first group had raised 10, started to raise her 10 children in a refugee camp in Kenya. And she was sat there with pen and paper writing stuff down, you know, by the end of this, becoming a student, you know. And, and so all of this was happening. Um, the, the final kind of bit before I talk about some of the outcomes that I've had shared with me by S was such an emotional payoff for me. The last group, I had to kind of move on and do some other work. There was there's kind of other things came up for me. And I went, oh, I've got the other end. And I'm so sorry to leave you, but... I know we've started something that's going to continue now. This is the sustainability. Oh, and they'll definitely uh, take a, it further. Oh, you, yeah. yeah, you know something that. Right? Happen, yeah. Even now, I'm not there. You know, these were short courses as well. They were like six, seven sessions or something like that. But you know, we were ramming in the value mm-hmm. of it and really, really making them work for people. So, effectively, I think for me, the emotional path, which was just massive, was when. S turned to me. She said, you know, when they talk about you, they don't call you Andy. I said, oh, what do they say? She said, well, they call you all these other names. And she listed several in Somali language. And I said, I don't know, you know, what do they mean? And the one that has stayed with me, um, and I think was incredibly, reward, incredibly rewarding, was when she said, they call you Will Kayaka. I said, what's it mean? She said, our son. <sighs> So, you know, I'm just like... Mothers, right? It feels like magic, guys. It feels like magic. But before I talk, you know, about the algorithm, the problem is, is finding organisations that will understand this way of working. It's not directive. It's based on listening. It's not rushed. There are no... You can't set targets for when it's going to happen. You don't know. You're going to have to go and find out. You're going to have to do the work and explore things and take your time. Actually, it turns out a lot of the time it is a very efficient way of working because you're listening to people and you're taking their feelings into account. You're you're troubleshooting ahead of yourself so much of the time. But in terms of the actual outcomes, they're extraordinary. A lot of the women entered work. Uh, Several went on to study other things. S herself went on to get a substantial role within a much more sort of established Somali community project that's that's slightly at the other end of the town in an equally diverse area and sounds like she's absolutely thriving from conversations I've had with her and so if I I was to say I believe in anything I think community development underpinned by a positive psychology model people can learn people can grow people can heal you know and that this had set I think a lot of those families back on their feet there was need for more work, you know, but that's where the community police came in. They were running football sessions with the kids. That was partly so that they could connect with them so that they're less likely to be easily drawn into a, a narrative where it's anti-authoritarian and it's okay to do these things, you know. Um, and I, I'm sure it benefited the wider families a lot. I see those women and they look different. They look different in how they present themselves. I can see the self-esteem in them the way they dress, the way they, you know, wear themselves, really. 
And also, they greet me in English. Yeah. yeah. They greet me in English when I see them. And I, okay, you know. So it was it was a really lovely experience. And I think it's one of the best shots I've got at looking at a, a wider intervention. I could talk about very specific, particular families where I've worked with this model. But this was, this to me was amazing that we could reach this many through doing something. And it wasn't all about the mums at all. And the women were really, really good. They couldn't get the guys involved. I mean, they did try, you know, but for various cultural factors, and I think, you know, gender factors, we just never managed to crack that. I did meet a few of the guys, but it never really progressed into that engaging much. And, uh, you know, but in terms of the work with the women, it was absolutely joyous and they were so funny, you know, and you get, you get into people's humor, you know, as well, and you get to know them and they were hilarious some of them as well and uh, so. well, I guess once you've raised 10 children you develop a sense of humor for sure oh goodness yes you know they were very funny about their men as well and then they would share like little, little humor things <laughs> I would say you know my impression I'd love to hear that you, you know, smiling mums and the toughest women on the planet I see you walking along with your shopping and three kids and this that, and the other and what this what one of them said and it had to be translated it said yeah with your husband over your shoulder <laughs> You're carrying him as well. I was like, wow, you know. So, yeah, I felt very privileged to hear those things. So, yeah, I think that's that's sort of one insight I can give you really into how community development can be incredibly powerful. You took an incredibly marginalised community there who were in deep distress, you know, at what was happening within their families and also couldn't talk about it. You know, when their sons were sent to prison for drug offences, they were telling their friends and neighbours he was, he was abroad. You know, it was shameful. They couldn't even address it in speech. Mm. Yeah, but I suspect that that was not the case. That there was enough empathy there in the group, and enough sense that genuineness actually was the really important key to overcoming the situation. Um, and I, you know, there's still issues around here, I'm sure, but I do feel that that multi, you know, multi-agency approach did an awful lot you know to undo the risks and harms that were happening to those young people particularly you know um, so yeah thank you for letting me share that because i do love telling that story thank <laughs> you, you probably tell it. Yeah. Well, well, what kind of uh, barriers do you often come up against in that in terms of what joe in this type of work um, um that so the way you're talking is kind of setting off a chain of like a process in which mm. people really you know find that agency and it kind of unfolds you can't you can't really predict how it's going to unfold it just kind of happens and mm. you can look back at that but what 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 barriers do you notice well i think there's personal just barriers and anywhere there's... really sorry yeah um i missed your last bit joe sorry i'm jumping a bit too soon just uh, just anywhere really what's anything where what that comes up for you yeah i think there's a number of things really i mean like i say there's an issue with resourcing it because it's not understood very easily um you know and i've not had the most i've had some fairly frustrating experiences trying to work within some projects where i've gone as a community development practitioner they've actually asked for it you know as a qualification and experience yeah. and i think what they're looking for is a little bit of magic to come into play without changing anything but the problem is as a community development worker, you're constantly interrogating power. You've got to do it. It's like non-stop. You've got to go, who's doing what to whom, as Paolo Freire put it. Who is doing what to whom? And, you know, if you're seeing someone dominating in a room because they're the CEO of this org and they will not listen, you know, to these service users, there is a problem. That's That's got to be challenged. Uh, and that is when we have to speak to power, and that isn't welcome a lot of the time. I think for me as well, because family work is very female-focused and often dominated by female workers, I'm a white working-class man, I'm very confident, I'm very outspoken, that can actually be very intimidating for some people, they're not used to it, and you know, I have felt a bit like, you treat me like an intruder into your world here. So on that personal level as well, um, I suppose on the personal level of people participating, though, Joe, there's, there's a few things. I mean, time. It takes time. People have got to find the time to come and do this as well. And the sensitivity around planning is massive. You know, the consultation about when are you actually able to do this 
has to be there right from the start. You know, we can't say, okay, guys, we're going to run this course this time and then go, Sodgy, if you can't make it, it's not going to work like that. You know, we've got to start from, okay, what time's your school run? You know, and how can we just get two hours of quality engagement and learning into that period? Um, so that's one aspect. In terms of per people's personal outlook and perhaps their personality and how that's developed in response to their challenges, it won't work for people who wish to hold on to a victim narrative. It doesn't. It challenges them very hard and they often don't like it and will react to it. You've got to be ready to look at what you're doing and whether you're listening to people and how you're using your power. And within a family, even the most disempowered adult outside of the, the family home is often very influential. We can all really affect each other within a family unit. So I think there's some issues around that as well. People's own capability. How ready are you to come and listen to others? Because the nature of this is not a didactic learning program. You're, the learning content is supplied by the participants. And I've had to work quite carefully with people who are misconstruing that sometimes because they want it to be something different. They want it to be, oh, well, can't I just, can't you just send it me at home? You know, and I'll do it as homework. I'm like, no, because you need to come in here all the people's account of their lives, actually, or else you're not going to get this learning. This, this is not theory. It's theory and practice inextricably melded together. Um, so I think there's a number of issues around that, people's readiness themselves and organisations' readiness and understanding and the resourcing of this work. And I think in respect of Sure Start, which I think was originally intended to be quite a community development-focused approach, we saw a gradual political abandonment of it, unfortunately, Joe. You know, the the costs were too high. The cost to society of allowing cycles of deprivation to continue unchecked are unfathomably high in terms of prison, poor education outcomes, you know, mental health, distress. Lots of services will be, you know, social services will cluster around those families, sometimes for generations. And the reality is that only by stopping our practice can we intervene effectively to do something that's going to work better for that family. Um, I thought it really interesting, for example, that there was a pilot, and I'm not sure what the outcome of it was, but I read about it. It was in Swindon, where families who were heavily involved in safeguarding and child protection proceedings, heavily serviced, heavily sort of called to account. I don't know if either of you have had the experience of going to these kind of formal meetings. Families, they look so overwhelmed in them. There's like them and there's 12 professionals sat at a table and often people are not going to listen to that family. They're going to tell them what changes they've got to make and they'll challenge them on why they say they, they're struggling to make them. Um, and I understand why that's the case. We want to protect children and safeguard them, but it's absolutely overwhelming. And in Swindon, they looked at doing it differently. They said to the family, pick your workers, you know, to meet with. Pick three representatives of the entire multi-agency group that's around this family. And I suppose I always felt in my heart, actually, that I would likely as not be chosen by a lot of the families I'd work with to, to be one of those three because of the fact I would be respectful to them and I'd be interested in them and wanted to understand the broader context of what was happening for them um, wanted to hear their aspirations you know not just what isn't working where are the strengths rather than just the deficits you know what are you doing right yeah even though some of the other stuff might not be great that seems to be the starting point that a lot of other agencies know won't want to start from they'll have their theoretical model and their praxis, which has been very defined for them, and it's matched to outcomes, you know, that are mapped. And so it's, I'm not saying we shouldn't have those things, but, you know, just because, you know, just, just because you can hit someone around the head with a shovel doesn't make a shovel bad. It's still the best tool for digging a hole. It's the way we use tools. It's the way we use targets. It's the way we use those 
formal systems around families, I think, that, that are often very disempowering to them or further their disempower disempowerment, really, and entrench it even deeper. You know, and I can't see any positive changes likely to come from that. I don't think that's a realistic model of how people work and human beings, really. In much as I believe in positive psychology, there's got to be certain conditions present for people to make progress, to move towards fulfillment, self-actualization, you know, however they might look at it. And I think that's where Paul's person-centered perspective comes into this as well. You know, we need a certain level of resource available to people and a certain life, mm -hmm. respect and care and love for them actually, which is very lacking often in their, their highly distressed family histories, you know. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. I think there's a number of different things going on at, at, at play there, John. <coughs> it does, oh, yeah. It's... And what comes up for me, is very simply, is that you put your uh, uh, energy focus into a relationship. Yeah, I think that's ultimately it. Um, and that's been very powerful, very, very powerful. I mean, it does present... I think it presents risks to workers that they're afraid of, that they don't think they can necessarily manage because it's a, it's a realignment of, of professional boundaries for a lot of people to be that, yeah. you know, to be that close to people. But you don't have to share your own intimacies. You don't have to share your own family history. I found it's not really helpful to people. You might in yourself feel that it's helping you relate to them or vice versa, but in actual fact, the fact that you've listened to them Respectfully is what will build that relationship in its strength. Its strength, really. So, um, so yeah. So, a really big believer in that. And I think what we haven't really touched on is a kind of more whole family model so much, have we? But, um, but certainly. I know. With uh, I was dying to ask you about your work with young fathers, and it, but that maybe we can invite you again in the new year Absolutely. to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that'll be lovely. I've got to. Wrapping up questions, okay. if that's okay, yeah? So, yeah. number one is, you were talking about self-care, and it so sounds very much like you're also, it's not just self-care, but you are uh, looking after each other with your colleagues, and you're looking after your other colleagues, right? So, it's, it's again, this small community care. Um, but my question is, what is something that you do just for fun with no outcome outcome emphasis at all what myself something personally. that is what we call yeah yourself yeah. personally something that we, we love this notion of an emotional playground yeah yeah something something where your emotions come out to play and you do just for that yeah well, i think there's, there's i'm very fortunate i feel very blessed that there are a lot of areas in my life where i can do that um I mean, you know, I do enjoy alone time. Now my son's older, my son's 23 now, so, you know, that's possible. It's, it's really helpful to have that. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm a very creative person, as, as, as you're well aware of you as well. I think with the thing with the music is that as I actually often focused more on achieving some outcomes. So I think sometimes it's just like... It is now, right? Yeah, it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I'd struggle to kind of not do that with it as well, to be perfectly honest. But, I mean, I just like to sit and watch a movie and sometimes on my own, you know, as well. And something, you know, it might be something really kind of obscure, culty, a bit, you know, I'd actually like something that's a bit of an antithesis to all of what I've just shared, you know. So it might be wildly unpolitically correct, you know, or something, you know, some sort of 70. Go on, what's, so what's something you've seen recently that you really loved? Oh goodness, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I really enjoyed the Northman, but we watched that together. Uh, but that was really interesting, sort of super violent, you know, very hallucinatory Viking film, and you know, and that kind of stayed with me a bit. I was just really immersive, really interested kind of ideas, you know, going on in it about the decisions we make. And I suppose I, you know, I am often attracted to things that are less superficial entertainments. I like things that I can get deeper into or maybe are controversial entertainment. I can see the value yeah. in it. Yeah. I can. Yeah. Absolutely. If it's of, working then it's working. I know, I think that's it. And that, and you're right, playground is really important. An adult playground is is really essential in our lives and to separate ourselves from the experience of taking responsibility for so much, you know, in 
people in the middle age of our lives, you know. Um, I would think a bit about Carl Jung's chapter about marriage where he talks about this is the point, the noon of your life, where everything is really going to come at you. You're under the the most pressure you'll ever be under, really, in your life. You're holding down your jobs, your family life, you're trying to deal with your extended family, you're trying to deal with the legacy of everything that's ever happened to you. And it does seem to be the point where things will leak out. I suppose the other sort of thing that I, I really think is important as well, that one of the last family projects I worked within um, insisted you have therapy as well. And I've maintained my relationship with my therapist now for three years. I'm finding that really, really helpful uh, as a way of just stepping out of everything, really, and having a, a completely private space just for me, you know. Um, and it took a while, I think, before I really had this epiphany when I was working with uh, my therapist, Mick, but I looked at him listening to me. I just concentrated so hard on what I was saying. And I just felt a wave of emotion come from that, actually. It was a really powerful moment for me where I went, I don't think I've ever been listened to like this in my life. There was some mixed feelings about that, but you know, stuff like that I think is really important. So I try and offset it up. I'm not currently doing a massive amount of direct work with people, but what I have been doing with the men's group, these guys are very poorly, you know, and there's very complex well-being issues and long histories of distress and, you know, mental ill health going on for a lot of them. So um, a lot of very dangerous risk-taking behaviour they've undertaken to try and self-manage as well so you know again it's so important to be able to just step away from that to leave that to say i mm. love them and when they're in my care i will do my utmost but when they're not in my care they're adults however vulnerable they may be at times they must find their own way in the world and uh you know and just allow myself yeah my entertainment that trust is also empowering i believe so i think that's really really important um I think it would be undermining what I'm doing if I did take that yeah, if you were, yeah. ownership of people's outside life. I don't think that would be right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to come back, guys. I mean, that's just one story. I just like there's six million stories, man, you know. In that the is. And I've got a fair few of them to tell you. So, love to come back anytime you'd like to have me on. It's delightful to see you. That is amazing. We, we will ask you to come back uh, in the new year. Thank you so much. It's been a real this pleasure. Thank been. you. Thanks for coming this out. This has been amazing. Yeah.